And I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9. This evening we will hear God's Word from Hebrews 9 verses 27 and 28. So hear now the Word of the Lord to you this evening from Hebrews 9 verses 27 and 28. And just as it is appointed for man to die once... And after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. Benjamin Franklin once wrote, In this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death, and taxes. The author of Hebrews would partially agree with that statement, concluding with Franklin that death is indeed a human certainty. However, for the author of Hebrews, the other half of certainty is not taxes, it's judgment. For he writes, it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. See, death is indeed inescapable. For sin came into the world through one man, and death spread, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, as Paul explains in Romans chapter 5. And God had warned Adam in the garden of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Adam ate, we all surely die. But that warning of death was not exclusively of physical death. For physical death is merely the first and actually lesser death. Far greater is the second death, which is the death of eternal judgment in hell. We read in Revelation 21... But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So this second death is God's ultimate judgment against sin, which he will pronounce on the last day, on the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord will therefore be a day of wrathful judgment. Prophet Zephaniah declares the great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust, and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on that day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of His jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For a full and sudden end He will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. It is a day of wrathful judgment. Yet this day of wrathful judgment is also described as a day of loving salvation. 
And so Zephaniah also says, On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by His love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. So we find that the author of Hebrews confirms that God has appointed death and He has appointed judgment. And because God is the one who has appointed these things, they will surely come. You cannot escape them. All you can do is wait for them. Yet there are two very different postures of waiting. For some must wait for that day with the fearful expectation of wrath and judgment. While others must wait for that day with the eager anticipation of loving salvation. And so I ask you this evening, as you sit in your pew, how are you waiting? Are you waiting fearfully? Or are you waiting eagerly? The first posture of waiting is fearfully. For children of God's wrath, those who are dead in their trespasses and sins in which they walk, as we heard Zephaniah say, the day of the Lord will be a terrible day, and so the only natural response is to wait fearfully. The author of Hebrews has already mentioned earlier in this letter that eternal judgment is coming, and he will warn later in chapter 10 If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. So there you hear that first posture of waiting. Fearful expectation. Now why is this fearful? Well, because God is holy. God is just. He is good. And so He wisely, justly, and righteously condemns sinners who have broken His law. Law Lawbreaking will never go unpunished. Judgment has been delayed, but it will not be dismissed. No case is ever just thrown out in the heavenly court. For God is the righteous, all-knowing, all-powerful judge of heaven and earth, and every soul that has ever been created will one day stand before His judgment. And in particular, we will all stand before the judgment of His Son, Jesus Christ the Lord. For Jesus says in John 5, The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. And so Jesus says again of the Father, He has given Him, that is the Son, authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Do you hear that? All those who have done evil will be raised unto judgment. 
The guilty will not go unpunished. And who is it that has done evil? Who's in that category? Well, everyone. Paul pronounces, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everyone has sinned. Everyone has broken God's law. But you might protest. I haven't murdered anybody. I haven't stolen anything. I haven't committed adultery. Well, first you need to remember what Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, if you've been angry against your brother, you have murdered. If you've had a lustful thought about somebody who's not your spouse, you have committed adultery. But if that doesn't convince you, I ask you, have you ever told a lie? Have you ever been less than fully honest? In other words, you may not have broken every single one of God's commands, but you've broken at least one of God's commands. And if you admit this, then you are now in the category of lawbreaker, and lawbreaker is someone who is guilty under the law. For James says, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point, just one, has become guilty of it all. So judgment day is coming when God will render to each one according to his works to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Now, if you read through the letter of Hebrews, you will see that Jesus is full of compassion. Someone who has identified with His people in their sin and suffering. But you have to understand, that very same Jesus is full of wrath. If your conception of Jesus does not include one who is full of righteous wrath, then you have a false conception of Jesus. It's one of the things that really frustrates me about this He Gets Us campaign. It's true, Jesus gets us. It's true that He is compassionate with sinners and sufferers. But that's just one side of the story. Jesus is also a wrathful God-man. You read in Revelation 6, speaking of the end, John describing many who hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? At the end when Jesus returns, there are going to be those begging for mountains to crush them so they don't have to face Jesus. The wrath of the Lamb. Why will they be begging for mountains to crush or hide them? Because ultimately they will be judged by whether or not they have honored this land. Whether or not they have received the Son by faith. For remember what Jesus said, the Father has given Him authority to judge so that all will honor the Son as they honor the Father. And the only way to honor the Son is to actually believe the Son. That He is who He has said He is. That He does what He said He came to do and receive Him by faith. For yes, the Father will send the Son as 
judge, but he first sent the Son as Savior. So judgment on the last day is reserved for all those who reject the Son as their Lord and Savior. Paul is clear that those who will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction are those who do not know God, who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. He again describes them as those who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So who then must wait for the day of the Lord with fearful expectation of judgment? It is not just those who are in the category of we've done evil and broken the law. It is those who have then rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the answer to their law-breaking. But this brings us to very good news, which is that there is a gospel of Jesus Christ which we can receive and be spared from His wrathful judgment. And for all who receive this gospel, they are not waiting for Christ's second coming fearfully. They are waiting eagerly. That's the second posture of waiting. And this is the surprising turn at the end of Hebrews 9. For the author speaks of death and judgment, but then he speaks of those who are eagerly waiting for Christ to come and for this day of judgment to finally arrive. If Christ is coming again to judge the living and the dead, and we are all going to have to give an account of our lives, as Peter says we will, You might think, how could anyone in their right mind be eagerly waiting for Christ to come again? And yet, that's what the author says. There are those who long for Christ to come, who cannot wait for that day, who pray for that day, who work to hasten that day. And in fact, that ought to be the posture of every Christian, of everyone who believes in the Son. Why should they be eagerly waiting? That's where I'll spend the rest of my time this evening. First, considering the heart of eager waiting, the, the reasons why Christians eagerly wait for Christ to return. And second, considering the face of eager waiting, meaning what does this look like in practice? There are two reasons the Christian waits eagerly for the day of the Lord. Number one, the Christian waits waits eagerly for the day of the Lord because the Christian already knows the verdict. So imagine that you were charged with murder. And the trial, the verdict, the possible sentencing, they're all going to happen on the exact same day. Now normally, you would be waiting for that day with great fear, especially if you know you're guilty. What will the verdict be? What will the sentence be? Will I go to prison for life? Will I receive the death penalty? Not knowing the verdict would cause great fear. But what if you already knew what the verdict would be? What if you knew the verdict would be not guilty and that you would actually be liberated and justified on that day of judgment because the judge came to you beforehand and told you what he was going to publicly pronounce on that day? Well, then you would not fear that day. You would look forward to that day because on that day you're finally going to be cleared and set free. 
Well, in one sense, this is the Christian's reality. Listen again to our text. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Now, if you're familiar with the letter to the Hebrews then you know that up to this point, the author has been arguing that Jesus is the inaugurator and mediator of a new and better covenant. A covenant in which God promises to forgive sins and remember them no more. And this is because Jesus is also the better high priest and sacrifice for sin who has offered his life once unto God as a sacrifice for sin, providing the perfect righteousness that God's law requires and paying the penalty for sin which God's law requires. Jesus has done this on our behalf, we're told in chapter 9, verse 24. He has put away sin, we're told in 9.26. By the blood of Jesus, therefore, Jesus has borne our sin, as it says in verse 28, referencing Isaiah 53. He has taken away our punishment and He has purified our conscience. He's paid the penalty. He's washed us clean. Not only this, He has offered to the Father the perfect righteousness by which we may be justified before God and His law. Paul summarizes this reality in 2 Corinthians 5. For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Therefore, when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, when you receive Him as your Lord and Savior, from that moment on, you are already justified before God. So Paul argues in Romans 3, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. And so Paul continues, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So do you see, those who have embraced Jesus and His blood by faith are justified now. They have peace with God now. The guilt, shame, stain, power, and penalty of sin are gone now. There is therefore not anything else that has to happen for you to be justified. We're not waiting for something that still needs to take place so on that day when Christ returns, we can be justified. Justification is once for all. So Christian, you will never be more justified than you were the moment you came to faith in Jesus Christ. 
the most sanctified Christian who has been walking with the Lord for decades is no more justified than the brand new Christian who received Christ five minutes ago. A few weeks back at Good Shepherd, we were receiving new members, performing various baptisms, and one of the young women that I was able to baptize and we received into membership is young college student at Western Michigan who came to faith in Jesus just a few months ago. Up until that point, she couldn't have told you one thing about Jesus. And yet as I stood up front preparing to baptize her, I reminded the congregation that as they looked upon the two of us, I've been walking with the Lord for 37 years. Some of you have been walking with the Lord far longer than that. But as I stood up there as someone who had been a Christian for 37 years, with someone who had been a Christian for three months, they were looking upon two people who were equally justified in God's eyes. I was no more saved than she is. For there is nothing you can ever do to add to your justification because your justification has nothing to do with you. And it has everything to do with Christ's perfect righteousness and sacrifice, which is perfect and once for all. So what is there to fear on Judgment Day? You already know the verdict, and that verdict is better than not guilty. It is perfectly righteous. In Christ, it is always righteous. The day of the Lord will merely be the public pronouncement and confirmation of what you already know. Thus the author says Jesus will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. The imagery is once again, as it often is in Hebrews, to the day of atonement in Leviticus 16. Because on that day, the high priest would first appear before the people and he would sacrifice a bull and a goat. Then he would disappear from view, going into the Holy of Holies behind the veil where he would sprinkle the blood on the Ark of the Covenant, first for his sin and then for the sins of the people. But then he would appear a second time before the people Not to offer more sacrifices for sin, but to confirm the Lord accepted the sacrifice and you are forgiven. That's what we see here. Jesus came to earth. He appeared to sacrifice himself for sin. And then he disappears behind the heavenly veil into the true sanctuary. But we're going to see him again. But on that day, it's not going to be to deal more with sin as if he has to do anything else. It's just to confirm, you really are saved. My sacrifice worked. God accepted it and he accepts you. So, he is not coming to deal with sin because he already dealt with it. He already bore the sins of many. He already put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. His life, death, and resurrection are sufficient. That's therefore what it means when it says He will come again to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. To finally bring them into the fullness of their inheritance and the eternal rest that is theirs in God. So salvation's not being added to. It's just being fully realized. 
Therefore, the Christian knows the verdict which leads him to eagerly wait for the consummation of his salvation. For as Jesus said, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. The second reason the Christian eagerly waits for the day of the Lord is because the Christian is waiting for the one he loves. In other words, the Christian eagerly waits for Christ's appearing because it's Christ appearing. You notice it doesn't say they're eagerly waiting for the day. It says they're eagerly waiting for Him. Do you know why heaven will be a place of perfect joy? Because heaven is where Jesus is. Because heaven is where Jesus is, that's why it's a place of eternal rest. Eternal rest is just you have Jesus forever. Jesus is the promised eternal inheritance which we receive. His presence is the goal of our salvation. For as sugar sweetens food, Jesus sweetens all of life. Therefore, for the Christian, the height of happiness is the presence of Christ. Christ is the one the Christian loves above all else and longs to be with. So you remember Paul tells the Philippians, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. And Peter says, though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. But that inexpressible joy filled with glory will only be complete when we actually do get to see Him. When we get to be with the one we love. And Jesus promises that this will take place. Of all the promises of the gospel that you read in the Bible, I think this is the best one and sums it all up. For in John 14, Jesus says, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. That's everything. And so Jesus prays, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. See, life right now is, is like a long-distance relationship. When Leandra, my wife, and I first started dating, we were in different states for the first six of nine months of our relationship. And even when we were engaged the hardest part was that every night we had to say goodbye and go to separate places and so as we looked forward to our wedding day one of the things we would encourage one another with is on that day we don't have to be in separate places anymore we don't have to say goodbye at night where one goes that's where the other is going for to be with the one you love is the greatest joy imaginable. So Paul says to the Thessalonians that when the Lord returns, the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. And then Paul commands the Thessalonians, 
encourage one another with those words. If you want to be a support and encouragement to your brothers and sisters in Christ as they struggle through various trials and temptations, one of the greatest ways you can do that is keep reminding them of what Paul says. The day is coming when we will always be with the Lord. When Christ appears again, it will be to save those eagerly waiting for Him, which means He will finally come to bring them to be where He is. Our relationship will no longer feel distant. We will see Him, and wherever He goes, we get to go. So the Christian is eagerly waiting for Judgment Day because Judgment Day for the Christian is actually Wedding Day. Oh, how the saints will sing, as it says in Revelation 19. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. We eagerly wait for Christ's appearing because we love Christ's appearing. Because we love Christ. So Paul writes to Timothy, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. That's the heart of eager waiting. That's the reasons for our longing. We know the verdict, and we get to be with the one we love. But what's the face of eager waiting? What does this look like? Again, I have two points, but these are much briefer than the first two. Number one, eager waiting looks like growth in the grace and knowledge of Christ. One might argue that Christ's second coming informs and motivates every New Testament letter to some degree. That's always on the author's mind. But two letters in particular are written with Christ's second coming at the forefront of the author's and hearer's minds. 2 Thessalonians and 2 Peter. For both of these letters devote extensive time to explaining the circumstances of Christ's second coming. But they also devote extensive time to how God's people should live in light of this truth. In light of the fact that Christ is coming again. In other words, both Peter and Paul address the question, How should I spend my days as I am waiting for the day? What do I do? Well, Peter's answer is that you should devote your days to holiness and godliness. After describing the day of the Lord, saying, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Then he adds, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. You know, Paul says the end of the world is coming. What do you do? He doesn't say build bomb shelters, store guns and ammunition, and make sure you have plenty of bottled water and canned goods. The day of the Lord is not the zombie apocalypse. No, neither does he say, just the end's coming, so get as many exciting and pleasurable experiences as you can. Do as much living as you can. 
No, he says, the day is coming, so live lives of holiness and godliness. Later, he puts it this way. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Notice he says, remain stable, but that stability is not static. You are growing in grace and knowledge in order to remain stable. That verse has has been formational for the way that I think about my life and the way that I think about ministry at, at Good Shepherd. If you were to ask me, Never visited Good Shepherd before and said, well, what's, what's ministry all about there? I would say that everything we do at Good Shepherd is aimed at helping people grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. For He is coming again. And the way to be ready for His return is to devote every day to living by His grace in godliness and knowing Him in a personal, loving relationship which includes knowing everything you can about who He is and what He has done. You want to know about the one you love. Eagerly waiting for Christ looks like pursuing growth in the grace and knowledge of Christ, which produces holiness and godliness. You see, the problem is we spend so very little time thinking about the things that matter most. And we spend so much time thinking about things that matter very little. Oh, that we might obey Paul's command to the Colossians when he says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Eagerly waiting looks like growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Second and finally, eager waiting looks like faithful activity. What does faithful activity look like? Well, one of the things faithful activity looks like is worship. Meaning, yes, individual lives of worship, but also corporate worship. You'll notice later in Hebrews 10, verses 24 and 25, the author says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So one of the ways that you wait as the day draws near is you go to church. This is waiting. This is waiting eagerly. But this faithful activity also looks like evangelism. Like being faithful to the great commission to make disciples of every tongue, tribe, and nation. As Peter speaks about the apparent slowness of the second coming in 2 Peter, he notes that it's not slow from God's perspective, but he also notes that it is slow in one sense for a very important reason, which is that God desires to save all of His people before Judgment Day. 
For when judgment day comes, there's no more opportunity for salvation. So in delaying Christ's return, God gives more people, more time for His people to be gathered and brought to saving faith. Peter puts it this way. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So wait for Christ's coming by telling others about Christ and that He's coming. His delay is for their salvation. But we need to be careful that we don't hear Paul's commands to set our minds on things that are above or to to hear this exhortation to worship and evangelism and think the only faithful activity that matters, that has eternal significance, is the obviously spiritual and religious activity. As opposed to just the everyday little things we have to do in life. It's not true. For what is Paul's practical application to the Thessalonians as he tells them extensively about Christ's second coming? He tells them all about Jesus coming again and then his application, his exhortation is, so you go to work, get a job, make a living, and don't be lazy. He says, for we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. In other words, when Christ returns, he should find Christian electricians doing electrical work. He should find Christian physicians treating patients. He should find Christian parents feeding their kids, changing diapers, and teaching their children. He should find them doing the things that He's called them to do in this life. Remember Jesus' parable about the talents. What the Master required of His servants was simply to be faithful with what He had given them. And earlier in Matthew, as Jesus speaks directly of His second coming, He says, Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom His Master has set over His household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom His Master will find so doing when He comes. The Master wants to find His servants so doing, active in life. So the Christian eagerly waiting is not the one who has become practically useless on earth. He's not one who lives in the world like a man just standing on a mountain staring into the sky waiting to see Jesus. He's one who lives in the Word, in prayer, in evangelism, in corporate worship. Yes, all of those things, but who is also living, doing his job, whatever that may be. Getting married, raising kids, impacting his society for good, and whatever God has called him to practically do in this life. So I believe God's command to us as we live in spir- as spiritual exiles on this earth is similar to what he commanded the Israelites as they were called to live as exiles in Babylon. For Jeremiah writes to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. 
plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. So Christian, be busy with the good work that God has given you to do as you eagerly wait for Him. And as you eagerly wait, growing in the grace and the knowledge of Christ and remaining faithful in activity, pray for that day to come. The heart that longs for Christ to come will pray for Christ to come. That's the response of the people to Christ's declaration when he says, Surely I am coming soon. And the people cry out, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do pray exactly for that. Would you please send your Son to come again, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for And I pray for those who are still waiting with the fearful expectation of judgment that they would hear the truth of the Gospel, that You would call them out of darkness into Your marvelous light, that they may know peace with You. There is no more condemnation for those who are justified by faith in Christ. May this be the very hour of their justification so that they do not have to wait fearfully, but may now and forevermore wait eagerly for the one they love because He first loved them. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.